Welcome to Idol Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney on the newest podcast from Idol Thumbs. Today, we're going to talk about soft spots. Uh, we're inspired by a piece of weekend correspondence, actually, from a listener named John Renish or Renish. I don't know how to pronounce it. We'll go with Renish. Let's try that. He writes, It's been great to hear your discussions about what goes into being a professional reviewer. When looking at games critically, do you have any soft spots that make you sweet on a game despite all other factors? In my case, I'm always a sucker for a pun, no matter how bad. Cheers, John Renish. Rob, this email spoke to me. It's, it spoke to me very, very directly, not only because he mentions puns being wonderful, which I, I completely agree with and will often uh, kind of do the same thing, but because I've been thinking a lot lately about things that I like, games that I like, movies that I like, TV shows that I like, that I don't necessarily think are the greatest thing, but I just love them so much, like just dear to my heart, love them so much. And I wanted to know, do you have the same experience yourself? Yeah, though I need to reflect on it a little more because what what I found actually is part of my tastes like evolving and changing is the fact that like things that were previously soft spots, eventually that need gets filled. And it's sort of like your your taste change, right? Like it, like yeah. sort of the way like stuff you could not get enough of when you were a kid mm-hmm. is just like horrifying now, <laughs> like to eat, right? Like yeah, you know. And and I think I, I end up in a similar place when it comes to sort of the soft spots, uh, where eventually I, I sort of service those preferences enough. Uh, to a point where suddenly I get really like either put off them entirely or really, really snobby about how I'm going to enjoy them. <laughs> I, I definitely understand what you're saying with that. I feel like when I was young and this is just, oh God, the worst. Um, I was really, when, when I say young, I don't mean like 10. This is like college age, 18 to, to 22, 23. Um, I, I really had a thing for Tim Burton movies and boy, oh boy. Am I not into Tim Burton movies anymore? At least anything that uh, he's produced in the last few years. Uh, it, it just feels like this this sort of indulgent thing that you loved at one point in your life. And then it just became this reminder of, of what you were like when you were young. And well, <laughs> it puts I you might off say, sometimes. I, I might say the Tim Burton example is interesting because that, I think, is an example of a creator having professional soft spots <laughs> that he's servicing again <laughs> and again. And over the years, his movies become more and more like in love with their own brand of quirk and more and more indifferent to what the audience thinks, right? And I, I think that's that's an interesting case. Like, I'm not sure that's that's your soft spot changing necessarily so much as like Tim Burton is just like kind of like, you know, you just happen <laughs> to enjoy the kind of stuff Tim Burton liked for all those years. And then yeah. he was like, what if I crank it up to 11? Yeah. Uh, and and you, you sort of parted ways. But, I, but I'm curious, like going to the, going to the games thing, like what's yeah. – like what? What are the soft spots, right? What are the things that automatically, like, even if you have problems with them, you're kind of going to give it that like indulgent <laughs> smile and be like, "All right, I see what you're doing." Oh here. my lord! For me, I have a lot, and I I actually sort of wonder if I have more than most people do because of just the way my my brain operates. Like, I I just have such a strong affinity for certain things, and I'm really that kind of person who's like. 120% about something, you know, to the point where it's probably a little obnoxious, you know, uh, <laughs> if you couldn't tell from listening to the podcast, I tend to talk about things I'm into uh, a lot, like The Witness, for example, um, or not into, whatever it is. So basically for me, if something is weird in a particular way, and uh, often we see this with horror games, and we see this with a lot of sort of quirky indie games, I think a really great example uh, 
and this is not to say that this is just sort of a, a guilty pleasure by any means. This is just sort of describing an aesthetic. The sort of weird horror, but not sort of jump scare horror that's in games like Kitty Horror Shows games, for example. She just came out with Anatomy recently, and that that was a pretty, I thought, amazing game. And, and things like Dust City and some of her other games that are just... They're weird in a way that is just, hey, we're going to a weird world and these the sort of storytelling is going to be inherent in exploring this weird world. And I am such a sucker for that. So, okay, so these I'm games, not familiar yeah, with their work. Uh, oh, sure, sure. Uh, so, so I'm just like, could you could you like give me a couple examples? Because like what like when we're talking about weirdness, what are, what are we talking yeah. about here? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'll describe them a little bit more. So Kitty Horror Show is sort of a one-person uh, game maker. She makes horror games that really do sort of explore the architecture of horror, if that makes sense. So uh, Dust City, for example, is a first-person game where you're just sort of exploring these different environments where, of course, the, the, the sort of overall theme is something went wrong here in Dust City, and it's abandoned, and there's this sort of like glitch art that uh, sort of describes little, not audio logs, but there's sort of text logs of, of this This happened, the oil came over and, and spilled and killed everything. But they don't look like your sort of typical first-person exploration games. They look weird and glitchy, and when you go up to the textures, they look sort of purposely PS1 era, uh, if, if that makes sense. They, they look bizarre and kind of mashed together and sort of use that glitch aesthetic to be part of the storytelling. Another game that really sort of uses that glitch aesthetic, the sort of things that look weird and they're supposed to make you feel uncomfortable, and that's sort of the point. That's the point of the game, and that goes into the story itself, is a game called Curtain, uh, and that was made by a person named Laura Dreamfeel, and it was it's a game with no real animation or people in it, and you're just sort of exploring an environment. Uh, and this game is actually about like an abusive relationship between two women. And it's like really weird and beautiful and ugly in a lot of ways. This sort of game is a thing that I feel like, you know, maybe gets kind of made fun of a little bit in, in a lot of circles for being this sort of like glitch indie, you know, like this is almost part of a movement or something. So I, I, I guess I would call it a soft spot that I have for these kinds of games. But when they tell a really interesting story, either a really personal story in the case of Curtain, or they just give me a very weird and bizarre place to explore. And I can get completely lost in that place. And I can sort of get obsessed with finding new details about it in something like a kitty horror show game. That is, that is so my bag. I could do it for hours and hours and hours looking at, you know, these like purple and green and, and sort of glitchy and garish looking landscapes and just completely lose my mind in them. I love it so much when they're done well. What is, why does that speak to you so much? Well, I honestly think it has something to do with how personal they feel. Like, these are the creations of one person. I think in, in both cases, it's Kitty Horror Show, and I think Laura Dreamfield also sort of made that game completely by herself or themselves. And it just feels like somebody had something really intense to say or, or really intense to share or really wanted this evocative feeling to, to go to other people's brains. And it's just completely, it almost feels like you are able to just sort of walk into somebody's one vision or, or, or like walk into their brain in a certain way. And there's something intense and personal and just, it's just such a strong feeling that I get from doing that. And I guess I sort of just feel, I don't know. I, I just sort of connect with that. I, it speaks to the reasons I play games. You know, we talk about this a lot, but I love that escapism. I love to explore sort of different worlds and different moods and different ideas. And it just feels right to be in these, these sort of ugly, weird, pretty worlds, I guess. 
I think I, I can definitely identify with that because I think, you know, like one of my soft spots, things that I really enjoy, I really love it when a game slowly puts me on like intimate terms with space or territory, right? With a, yeah. with a place. Yeah. Uh, and, and so like, you know, and, and tone matters too, but like, I really enjoy games that give me good reasons to explore and really understand, uh, an area. Like yeah. a good example is I loved how in The Witcher 3, uh, when you first arrive in, uh, the, the, the overworld, the province basically, Velen. Yeah. It's this, War-torn hellscape, uh, with this, this scary wilderness and, uh, it's this, this bizarre otherworldly beauty. And as you go back and forth over the course of this game and traverse this land again and again, and not only like level up, but, but also sort of understand, like you, you start learning to identify various like types of monsters by sight, right? You know yeah. exactly what type of encounter it would be when you, if you choose to fight them. You see those uh, drowners from a mile away. <laughs> yeah. And like, uh, you know, I, I really took satisfaction in like coming to terms with the, this landscape, right? And, and going from feeling like it was this alien threatening place to, somewhere I was really comfortable. Like it was this, it, I was, I was sort of at home in this, in this really otherworldly environment. Uh, and it, it helped both put me in the character of Geralt, right? Who is yeah. he, his living, he makes his living, uh, you know, being sort of mastering these, these, these places. But at the same time, it also gave me the same like satisfaction that I get from uh, like really learning a new neighborhood in a city. Right. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. Or I think back to something like GTA 4 and how eventually, like, I could have just turned off the minimap because I just knew, I, like, I knew it's fictionalized New York, right? I, I, I just, I knew that space. And then it would give it, give these moments like a weird resonance sometimes, right? Like you'd be driving home after, uh, a, a mission where something horrible happens because that's what happens in, in GTA missions. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're driving home and you, you've just gone through a really terrible cutscene and <laughs> and a bad mission, and then like the right song comes on the radio and you hit a familiar turn, you know, onto a street and you're you're heading back to your place and it's this weird it's there it's this oddly resonant moment because it is suddenly not just this like virtual playground or theme park but there's this weird connection now between between you and the space yeah. and i think that that's something that i you know i i'm pretty much always interested in and it probably makes me like enjoy enjoy games uh more than more than i otherwise would right like i have a lot of a lot of problems with um with mo mo most rockstar games sure. uh but that aspect of it of of learning a new environment and to a degree taming it makes makes it more more enjoyable uh for me the flip side is like when a game and that's not a function of an open world like yeah. far cry 3 did nothing for me on that front yeah. because the world is a theme park there's there's nothing to learn it's just a bunch of you know it's a bunch of quest icons i i, I have the same sort of feeling in um the assassin's creed games where you have this this huge world to explore but it's this weirdly it's this weirdly dead place. Like I never feel like I, like I am building a personal connection with it sure. because it's so obviously constructed just to entertain me. 
whereas some of these other examples are places that feel like they exist, even if you're not around to enjoy them. Yeah, I think that's the key. Absolutely. A place that feels like a real place for some reason. You're not the only one there. You know, there's other souls inhabiting this space. Yeah. There's other minds there. Even if there aren't, they, it feels like there are. It feels like lived in and, and rich in certain ways. I, I can trace back my, my, and I completely agree with you in what you're saying. That sense of place and that sense of space and that, spe- that sense of almost being at home in some of these places, even if it's not, you know, your actual sort of physical creature comforts kind of home, you feel at home, at least inhabiting this, that character or, or, or in that space. I can trace it back to when I was 17, I, I sort of had this run of Dreamcast games that made me, I think we're pretty formative for a lot of the things that I would end up liking, at least in terms of tone and games. And I was playing Shenmue and I was playing, believe it or not, Jet Grind Radio, even, um, you know, these games that sort of took play and, and Crazy Taxi. You know, I know those games sound nothing alike. They're not anything alike, mechanically speaking, but they all were sort of, I played them all at the sort of same time, the February, March of 2001 or so, when I was like 17 years old and just sort of starting to really understand what, what made me interested in certain games, especially when none of my friends were playing games anymore. This was sort of the age where I was a teenager and just, I did not have any friends who played games and I was still obsessed with them and, and sort of getting more and more into them. And all of those games had one thing in common, and that was exactly that. They felt like sort of living worlds. Even though they looked nothing alike or played nothing alike, they they all had a sense of space and place. And they made me feel at home in a weird way when I played them. Even driving my taxi through, you know, sort of imaginary New York and imaginary San Francisco felt like being in a real city and that there were real people who needed to go places. I I know it sounds super cheesy, but it it really kind of uh, stuck with me always for, you know, sort of throughout these years. And that's always something I do look for and definitely have a soft spot for. (laughs) Yeah. And I I mean, I remember, um, I don't know if you ever played the original Mafia, but that's a game. Yeah. And and the game opens with you just being a cab driver, right? And you sort of get caught up in the whole adventure. But for me, I always sort of mourned the end of that, that prologue or first act where like you were sort of a cab driver, but you kept getting caught up in all this like mafiosi like bullshit. Cause (laughs) to me, that was the end of like the really cool part of the game, right? That was a cool dilemma. You were a working stiff who was slowly getting dragged into this life of crime. Yeah. And it was sort of interesting where you had to, like, you cared about the things a cab driver cared about, right? Like, you cared <laughs> right. about traffic. You, you cared your about fares. learning your yeah. routes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and then it sort of walked away from that and, and became a really, really linear uh, shooter in a lot of ways. But uh, it, it, I, there was this, there was this other possible mafia game you could see, you could see in, in the, in the original mafia, uh, that, that went unrealized. The, the one other thing I'd say, yeah. Uh, for a soft spot of, of mine is that I really love it when um, a game makes me deal with when a game denies me total control, right? Sure, like sure. I enjoy things that sort of push back against my exercising uh, my, my, my usual control over surroundings. So like a good example of this is, um, there's this series, uh, Scourge of War. Uh, it's a war game series where rather than being the general in charge of an entire army during the Civil War, most scenarios make you a sub commander. Uh, so you are, you you command a brigade or a division, but not the whole army. And so you have orders from above. But then you also have subordinate commanders who are giving you information and making judgments 
uh, on their own. And you sort of have to read and react to those. Yeah. And it's this really cool, like, I, the number of things I can actually control in the battlefield is, is quite limited. I can, I can still do a lot, but there's a lot that's also completely out of my hands. I've always found that experience really kind of exhilarating. Yeah, I, I can see that certainly. It's, it's almost tiring to feel super powered sometimes. You know, certainly it's, it's a lot of fun at times in the right context, but at other times, there's a, there's a part of your brain that, that kind of wants to be, I don't know. I, to be put in that position, to be put in a position that you could see being almost realistic in a way, or at least emotionally realistic, which I, I totally get. And I will, I will mention another soft spot that is the predictable one, but this is, <laughs> this is definitely true for me in games as well as movies and TV and everything else. Um, <laughs> I will always have a very soft spot for any property, whatever it is, playing, watching, et cetera, that has, you know, uh, queer women in it that are not written to be just disgusting stereotypes but like even mm -hmm. if it's just the worst show or the worst movie but if there's like there's a lesbian character who's a cool person who's not you know just literally a walking 90s stereotype i'm like oh it's, it's cool she's cool i'll watch it which is something i'll be honest is is true of a lot of uh queer folks it, and at least it was especially a few years ago when there was far fewer entertainment choices for us i speak as someone who was sort of a movie critic a queer movie critic for you know a huge portion, like 2006 to 2013, that was a job I had, was was sort of reviewing queer movies. And people people went to these movies, even though sometimes they weren't good in any sense of the word. Uh, but, you know, it was just like, I, I want to see these stories. I just want to, you know, sort of see myself in this. And that's, it's a really powerful thing that I know is talked about a lot more now. So I guess it's maybe not quite as relevant, but I, I will still do that. You know, there's, there's a lot of shows. There's a show called Lost Girl that I uh, I love and adore, and I've just gotten back into it. Wait, is that the thing on Sci-Fi? I see. Oh yeah, it's. Oh Danielle, that looks atrocious. It, it is in a lot of ways. Oh no. <laughs> it's like it's it was basically soft spots, Danielle, not blind spots. It was basically Buffy with a lot of sex and a lot of gay stuff. Maybe is even softer than sort of the other uh, soft spot I mentioned. <laughs> basically. Oh, the softest of spots. Yeah, well, it's, at some point we'll 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 have to <laughs> we'll have to have that discussion because about something about something I've seen, right? Like I only yes. see I only see pre trailers for that show during the Magicians, and oh, I, yeah. the one I've seen like five times is a, a a hot girl going, "Who doesn't love a good group suck?" Yep. And then I need <laughs> to take a shower before I can watch the rest <laughs> of uh, the Magicians. It is. It is the id of trashy Buffy spinoffs. I don't know. It, it's it's all id. It's all ridiculous. It's all hot people in leather having sex and being magical. And it's ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. But it's also great in its own ridiculous way. I don't know. It's probably worth a, a discussion some other time. But it's it's a soft spot for sure. <laughs> camp, I think is the, the art of camp is probably a discussion for yet another day. Yes. Uh, because there is like, you know, what's good camp. When does, you know, like what balance is there to strike? Uh, and that comes up in interesting places and in, like video games too. Oh, yes. Uh, Cause there's, there's sort of like being aware of, of your limitations or the, or the things you're indulging in a game versus, like trying to service them so much that it, it becomes sort of grating. Certainly. Uh, but 
yeah, camp uh, camp is an interesting interesting topic. Um, but we should we should turn to uh, our weekend correspondence because there was a pile of it. Yes, absolutely. That sounds like a great idea. I'll take the first one. This one came from Brian in Ohio. Hey, weekend wayfarers. Regarding your discussion on strategy games that cut out the micro, the often overlooked RTS game Majesty by Cyberlore Studios and published by Microprose for Windows in 2000 touted itself as a fantasy kingdom simulator with RTS trappings. In this game, the player chose the buildings and the heroes to be created, but all of the agency of said heroes was left up to the AI. The only way you could influence said heroes was to place bounties on targets to encourage heroes to attack. It was a very interesting system that, per your previous observation, met its evolutionary dead end with this uh, with this installation, to my knowledge. The game is usually cheap on good old games, so maybe interested parties could give it a go. Brian from Ohio. Yeah, I, I threw that in just because that was something that completely slipped my mind uh, when we were talking with Tom Check, and it is this odd attempt to take control away from players or, or force them to do things indirectly. Uh, and I, I heard it was a pretty good series. It just kind of, not only was it an evolutionary dead end, but I, but I gather it kind of all like it was an evolutionary dead end, even within itself, right? Even in the, over the course of those games, you could sort of see the, see the idea run out of steam. Sure. Uh, but that's something I definitely, uh, want to take a look at. Uh, so even though uh, you have mentioned that, um, you you've had your fill of witness emails, Danielle. <laughs> um, we did no, get a good one here coming. from we we did get a good one here from Problem Machine. Um, yeah, I just finished listening to the February twelfth and twentieth episodes where you discussed the idea that the witness teaches skills that have no application outside the game, and said that if you were going to spend time learning things, you wanted to, them to have some worldly application. And it seemed to me that the thought process made kind of an unwarranted leap. Every game requires you to learn its language. Do you think it's the witness's presentation that seems more didactic or even pedantic that made the game's challenges feel like learning rather than overcoming a challenge in a more naturalistic way? Is it that the nature of the challenges themselves represent an uncommonly complex set of ideas which require an approach more akin to actual study than the more casual learn-by-doing tact that other games tend to favor? I'm taking an even tone here, but I'll be honest, this line of discussion upsets me. I'm working on developing a game now, and I'm not teaching it, I'm not designing it to teach you how to do your taxes or build a table <laughs> or cook a turkey, but I still want to believe that it can be a worthwhile experience. I find it shocking and even perhaps disingenuous to hear this idea given credit on a podcast about video games. Am I way off base here? Uh, is there something I'm failing to grasp in this discussion? Oh my god. Well, this is a great email. Thank you, Problem Machine. And I have <laughs> continued to play The Witness despite my clearly uh, making a lot of uh, negative noise about it as well. So it, it clearly has its hooks in my brain, and I'm not stopping anytime soon, even though I am actually very close to beating it. Here's, here's where this comes down to, and I, and I, Problem Machine also posted this uh, in the forums, uh, which was also very helpful. I have been sort of in my life in the last few months doing a lot, and I've been very busy. I have, you know, sort of my full-time job, my part-time job. We started this podcast, and I've been training to be an EMT, and I've been doing all my sort of athletic training as well. So the fact that I am putting so much time and effort into The Witness is is my fault entirely, uh, especially if I'm not uh, enjoying it 100%, even though I'm enjoying it on some level. So it's my fault, and really I should be frustrated with myself, I think, uh, for a lot of this. But on the flip side of that... Um, you know, I'm doing sort of medical training right now, and it and it bothered me on some level 
that, you know, solving your average puzzle in the witness was more difficult for me than actual, like, doing medical training. And I'm obviously not on a very high level of medical training by any means. I'm being an EMT. I'm not becoming a doctor or anything like that. But it frustrated me that it was so much harder for me to play this game than to do any of these other things I'm doing in my life, which which just seemed wrong to me. Now, I completely agree Games do not have to have a real-life application for me to be happy with them. I clearly, you know, just talking today in the podcast, I, I love, you know, I was talking about loving sort of kitty horror show games that take place in imaginary universes where you're just exploring things. There's no real-life application to that, but I'm I'm enjoying it. I'm getting something out of it. I'm not so frustrated with myself, and I don't feel stupid <laughs> when I do these things. I think it's more that I have... Uh, at times with The Witness, felt negative about myself and felt like I'm working so hard at this, yet the things I'm actually, you know, also working hard on don't feel as hard as playing this game. So there's sort of a disconnect for me there, um, which annoys me and frustrates so, me on some level. <laughs> okay, so I think you have to be careful. Like, a lot of what we say is not meant to be prescriptive. Yes. Right, like I know, I like I know the conversations that Problem Machine is referencing, and like a lot of that was just kind of us, like, just sort of talking, right? Like, it's, yeah. like it's it's it, we're talking, like we're discussing more in terms of the way we're reacting to things and the way we're feeling about things, and that doesn't necessarily mean we have like a we're we're like reaching prescriptive conclusions from that. Right. This is just like sometimes this is how a game like rubs you, yeah. and it's the wrong way, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad game, but it's a reaction that we're having and is probably is worth talking about, right? I don't think it's an I don't think it's an invalid reaction to have to something. Uh, on the other hand, Danielle, I've been wondering this for weeks. Yeah. At what point do we have to admit that you don't dislike the witness and actually you kind of love it? Oh God, I love it and I hate it. That's the thing. I'm so completely ambivalent on this game, which is what is so funny to me about all. You know, we've gotten a lot of very very polite. Uh, and politely worded emails that were clearly frustrated with me uh, for how much whining I do about The Witness. But it also should probably be really clear to you that I'm obsessed with this game. You know, I streamed it for five hours straight the other night, just completely I, banging my head against the wall and talking to people and laughing. And, and actually, now that's pretty much how I'm going to play it. This is another thing we talked about the, on the podcast yeah. in a different context of how sometimes streaming a game is more fun and actually the witness is more fun with an audience, at least at this point in time where a lot of other people have completed it. I don't know if it would have been fun, you know, uh, earlier on in sort of the witness's little lifetime. Um, I guess maybe I'm just sort of finding the way I need yeah. to play it to enjoy it the same way that, you know, a lot of people are, are, are frustrated with me for, for, you know, maybe playing it the wrong way, quote unquote, another topic of the podcast. Um, but I'm clearly obsessed with it. I can't stop playing it. I've put more than 70 hours into this game. It's in my brain. It's infected my brain. So I'm, I obviously love it. I'm obviously in love with it. It's just a difficult relationship. <laughs> So yeah, <laughs> that's my Danielle's cool. witness tirade for this episode, I guess. All right. <laughs> awesome. So next email comes from Casey. Hey, Weekenders. I have a couple of questions related to playing games the right way. Awesome. <laughs> during your discussion, I was reminded of when a developer of Bioshock mentioned that during playtesting, they watched testers spend multiple hours doing nothing but methodically pick through every single trash can in the game, completely breaking the tension and momentum of the story, and then report that they hated the experience. 
The implication, it seemed to me, was that they were playing incorrectly and had nobody but themselves to blame for their lack of enjoyment. To what extent do you think the designer is at fault in cases like these? But how do we know where the responsibility lies in the designer-player relationship? So that email jumped out at me because there's actually a couple things in the original Bioshock that, that are that sort of tie into this. Sure. Um, I, I think for me, even even a bigger issue in the original Bioshock, even more than that one, uh, even though the game totally does encourage you to rifle through every single thing in the environment <laughs> yeah. uh, to collect like an extra hit point from a bag of chips. Uh, <laughs> the thing that really like hurt Bioshock for me, and I and later I talked to some developers who worked on it, and they were sort of um, disappointed to hear these objections because uh, mm-hmm. they were they were common, but there was it was something they hadn't really foreseen was that. In the very first level of Bioshock, it teaches you the old one-two, right? You yeah. zap someone with uh, a plasmid power, and you just walk up to them and wail on them. Uh, and that is a useful tactic that never really stops working. Like, the, yeah. the old one-two <laughs> will get you through a huge amount of that game. That is that is, that is your moneymaker uh, when it comes to taking down splicers. Then there are all these other plasmid powers that the game introduces later uh the 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 bees uh there's very security there's various like uh security system uh ones there's traps you can lay but by that point i was just like no screw it like the clearly the correct way to play this is just the efficient way right like walk up to someone hit them with a burst of lightning and then just take them down yeah and so by the end of Bioshock, I was kind of bored with Bioshock because I was sick of that that combat model, and I don't remember who it was. It might have been uh, it, it might have been Dean Tate, but it was somebody who worked on that game. Was like, well, you know, we all kind of expected people would play around with the other powers because they were because they were fun. Yeah, and I was like, but why would I like? <laughs> I was just baffled, right? It was like, no, but but it's but it's inefficient. It's hard. It's a way to get hurt and lose like health trying to do these cutesy ways of taking down monsters, where clearly the you know the can't fail way was the right way to play. <laughs> and so there's an example of like if your game like Bioshock has a very serious tone in a lot yeah. of ways. Like it's a cool game, but it is not a playful feeling one. It is it sure. is closer to survival horror in tone. And so nothing in that game made me feel like, okay, it's, you know, you, this is a good time to sort of screw around with how you want to handle this encounter. Bioshock 2 fo- fixes this problem. It solves it. Yeah. By basically, first of all, it, it gives you a lot of different weapons that all have different abilities. So you have a weirder tool set in, in Bioshock 2 than you have in Bioshock 1. But then also really quickly, like Bioshock starts take, Bioshock 2 takes away a lot of your most reliable weapons, right? Yes. Like ammo becomes scarce, uh, stuff like that. Or encounters get really difficult, uh, having to defend the, uh, the little sisters. The harvesting. Uh, yeah. The whole harvest sort of loop. Yeah. Yeah. Something you have to like defend and hold territory. And so it forces you into this position where now the optimal way to play also dovetails perfectly with that creative way to play. And so I think that's, that's kind of the thing is like, it's not just, it's not just a matter of, I think, laying the tools out before the player and saying like, well, it's up to you to, to know what to make of these. I, I think how you react to those tools also depends sort of on the world you've constructed and the type of challenges uh, you've, you've put down for the player. And I don't think you can really, you know, if, if everything about the game says the object is to win and to progress, 
then I, then I think it's sort of, it, it behooves you to create situations where the player has to sort of think outside the box in order to do that. Otherwise, uh, the, there's no guarantee that the player will. Certainly, uh, certainly I won't. Yeah, I think uh, I think you absolutely nailed it there, and that's also why you know Tom Schick and and a few others have the opinion, and I and I sort of agree with this opinion uh, that Bioshock Two is the secret best Bioshock yes, by that's by a quite fact. a bit. Yeah, that's a scientific fact. <laughs> I'm I I like that argument, and I and I think I agree with it. Although I do <laughs> talking about soft spots, I do have quite a soft spot for the environments of the first game. I think they're pretty amazing. Oh, but, yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the opening of, of Bioshock 1 is is tremendous, and there's yeah. certain, like, high points in that game. Fort Frolic, I think, is oh, just yeah. one of the greatest, like, shooter levels I've I've ever played. Could have been a game by itself. Oh, yes. Um, but at the same time, like, just as a thing to play, and then the entire third act uh, of, of Bioshock 2, it just, yeah. it all works. Like, Bioshock 2 gets better as you play it, yes, and yes. Bioshock 1 does not. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I like this opinion, Rob. I'm, <laughs> All right. I'm privy to uh, Our it. next email comes from Cha. Okay. Uh, well, the, the email came from someone named Charlie, but they signed it Cha, so I'm actually very curious now. I like that. Yeah. Uh, that's an interesting take on the name. Uh, so this comes from Cha. Hi, Robin Danielle. Your discussion about the right way to play made me think about my love-hate relationship with trophies and achievements. In a skill-focused game like The Binding of Isaac, I find achievements can add something to a sense of progression, but for many games, achievements can push playstyle in specific directions, which might not line up well with my own best way to play. Do you ever find achievements influencing your playstyle or experience in good or bad ways? Are you better at tuning them out than I am? I... You know, I, I think we might be of the same mind of this, but I kind of hate achievements, usually unless they're very funny. If they're actually funny, if there's actually a joke being written in, you know, as a sort of a wink and nod to the player from the developer that, hey, this is ridiculous, but here you go. Those I appreciate, but otherwise I, I really dislike them because they, they make work out of playing games in certain ways. They make it, uh, I don't like my experience to be quantified in the way that achievements do. And, you know, all the power to you if you do like achievements. But personally, I, I don't like that aspect of them. I want to experience a game as organically as I can. And, you know, sort of seeing the achievement window pop up can, can sort of bring me out of it sometimes. Something I'm really t- of two minds about is, uh, games that sort of give you, feedback about the score you just got like what mm. tier of performance you got right did you get did you get gold medal in this or whatever and so like you know in super meat boy for instance you have a moment where like oh boy i beat that level that was really hard i feel good about myself and then immediately the game is like oh yeah but did, did you know you could beat that level 14 seconds faster and if you do <laughs> and at that yeah. point like there's this this switch in my brain it's sort of the um the part of my brain that plays a lot of racing games too, right? I'm like, wait, you mean there's a fast, there's a fast yeah. lap time I'm supposed to beat? <laughs> I'll, okay, I'll just do that. And it's kind of cool. It gives me a reason to sort of really master a level and understand how it works and, and an experiment. And that's kind of cool. But the other side of that is sometimes it forces me into this like prison like relationship with a game, right? Where it's yeah. like, I, you know, I could move on. But the game's kind of already saying to me, like, well, I mean, if you're happy being a loser and, like, you're willing to just take that bronze, fine. I guess you can move on. You, you quote, unquote, beat the level. <laughs> uh, but really, the real game is the real game is getting gold. And that that's something that, like, I wish I could, like, 
switch that off. Like on the one hand, it's kind of fun doing that. But on the other hand, man, do I sometimes just completely ruin games and like stall the, stall the experience out because I'm obsessing over that stuff. Yeah. It's, ugh. that gets me too, especially in a platform. For me, it's platformers because it's like the one genre I'm, I'm any good at ever. Uh, <laughs> it's something like the score attack shows up for that. I'm like, Oh my God. Banjo can go faster. I mean, it's not actually for Banjo, but you know what I yeah. mean? I get, the, I get the same thing for sure. All right. This next email comes from John. John writes, XCOM 2 added the shaken status as a form of PTSD for wounded soldiers. At first glance, this was a fair way to address the mental toll of war. However, it does have one major issue. The only way for a soldier to recover from being shaken is to be ordered back into combat, after which there is a chance based on uh, damage taken and alien kills to lose the negative status. Even while the fate of all humans is on the line, this is likely the worst way to treat such a real and complicated issue. In Darkest Dungeons, combat stress can be mitigated by indulgences, a bit better than XCOM 2, but getting drunk for a re- uh, excuse me, drunk for a week really doesn't solve the issue. When games build abstract mechanics around something as complex as mental health, they often fall short. I'd be grateful for your thoughts on these matters. Cheers, John. Um, this is something I sort of have been struggling with myself a little bit as I've, as I've been sort of trying to be more <laughs> cognizant of how games deal with mental health, especially as, uh, for me, um, you know, somebody who loves the, ho- the horror genre and the way mental illness is often treated in horror is, is pretty terrible a lot of the time. Um, I, I'm glad to see, I guess, developers at least attempting to, to, you know, actually address the fact that, you know, soldiers at war do go through absolute hell and have things like PTSD. I think there's, there's something of merit to that. There's something of merit to that idea, but yeah, I I think what John is saying here is that it's really just, it's, it's not doing the job. It's, it's maybe coming from a noble place, but it's not really showing that in a, in necessarily the most respectful way or or the best way. (laughs) And I'm not even sure it's coming from that noble place because it's just like, it's it's just this little status effect. Uh, yeah, I guess I'm being of, optimistic, saying it's like, oh, maybe they want to show how hard. It, <laughs> maybe yeah, they I, just want to throw it in. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think it exists more as a knuckleball because uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, in addition to it, it sort of being problematic as as a representation of PTSD, uh, it's also kind of a frustrating game mechanic because it, it, it's in keeping with a lot of what XCOM Two does, which is it puts a negative. It, it creates a negative status effect, which then increases the probability of negative outcomes on a mission, which then increase the probability of more negative status effects. So the, the whole like shaken thing becomes the start of a potential spiral for a character, especially because as the game gets more difficult, the odds of a soldier going out on a mission and having that good clean run that you mm. need to get that soldier like cured of their shakenness yeah. uh, becomes really unlikely. It becomes a really, so it becomes a really frustrating thing trying to kick the status. Uh, and in the meantime, what's more likely is that that soldier is going to freak out and uh, panic and probably like kill another squad mate or, or fail at a key moment, which again is also not awesome for what it implies yeah. about, um about PTSD. Um, there's this really, God I, God, I wish I could dig it up. There's this really amazing um, uh, storify I found not that long ago about um, 
it was shortly after I, I want to say Sarah Palin had had made remarks mm-hmm. about uh, excusing a relative's behavior for uh, be, because they were they were due to PTSD and a veteran said that was that was really offensive because that's that the PTSD doesn't justify uh, mm-hmm. bad behavior necessarily but the part that really leaped out at me was this veteran was talking about his um his experiences coming back from uh, coming back from uh, Iraq mm-hmm. and. The frustrating thing uh, for that veteran was was that at any given moment, they knew they'd have been fine if they could have just gone back into combat. Combat was easy. Uh, PTSD didn't affect them as, as a soldier. It may have made them a better soldier, uh, because that was that, that heightened environment with all those instincts was, was kind of where the soldier thrived. And the frustrating thing was this feeling that you were only a competent person. You were only a capable human being if you were back on deployment and in combat. But as far as like getting through a day at home, uh, you were somehow irrevocably broken. And that is the th- that's the part. That's the, the aspect of PTSD that kills people. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that's just that that's what brought this to mind is like what like what we tend to think of as as uh, the the effect of traumas is this really sort of BS Hollywood version. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's not, it's not like cinematic cuts to flashbacks or anything like that. It's, it's just all the little things that become impossibly difficult. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I, I think games, games do trivialize it, uh, in a way. I also don't think they're trying to talk literally about, about PTSD, but they do have this, they do have this issue where they, they, uh, they, they don't know how to, how to address things like when, when people stop being able to do their job, uh, basically, mm-hmm. I, I I'll just toss in one other thing. There there was a series, uh, the Close Combat series, did touch on this a little bit. Uh, it was known for it was a World War II combat series, mm-hmm. and it was sort of known create for creating kind of a psychological profile for for each soldier. And I don't know what was going on under the hood, but one of the interesting things in that game was the fact that it modeled this idea that soldiers um, soldiers can burn out. Yeah. And you wouldn't have necessarily people you wouldn't you wouldn't get a status effect, right? Where like a soldier's shaken or uh, they they're being overcome by madness in the, yeah. in the classic like Lovecraft inspired uh, way. But you would have things where like veterans would suddenly become really risk averse. They wouldn't defy your orders. But if you wanted them to, like, you know, charge a machine gun nest and throw a grenade into it so that it would knock out the machine gun and the rest of the squad can move up, a crafty old veteran might not be capable of following that order anymore. Yeah. You do try to do it some other way, but it, but it become this really, like, uh, it, it becomes something that where survival came first, uh, whereas rookies didn't necessarily have that same sense of mortality. And that was really cool because it dovetailed uh, a lot with with various things I've I've read about uh psychological studies on on combat infantry in World War II. There's this really interesting book years ago, uh The World Within War, which was basically about the US Army's lessons uh, about the impact of combat uh on soldiers. And it was this the 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 interesting thing that they learned was that sold like once soldiers are deployed to a combat zone, they're basically on a timer uh before hmm. they before they stop being able to to, to function. Uh and 
in World War II, they, they found that that timer was about 200 days of uh, hmm. continuous operations. And at that point, uh, the soldier just becomes, uh, the, the performance begins to slump because there, there's just too much, there, there's too much awareness of, of the stakes. Uh, and, there, and there's, there's too much collected trauma. Uh, and so that was, it was an interesting case of an example trying to model, uh, sort of the, the effect of experience on a soldier. Yeah. That, that is very alarming and, and certainly makes a lot of sense. And the last thing I'd say about this, I, I, you know, I met somebody, I think maybe it was even at GDC last year. He was a combat veteran who's now working on video games. He's, he's, you know, going to school for game design and wanted to make games and so on and so forth. And, you know, we talk often about sort of underrepresented folks in games and, and sort of it's how important it is for, say, you know, trans writers to be writing games about, you know, trans characters and, and queer writers and so on and so forth. And maybe some of this could, could benefit from, you know, combat veterans making games and, and sort of, sort of showing those experiences from an actual point of view of somebody who, who knows what they're talking about with this yeah. sort of stuff. Uh, that, that could be cool, I think. Before I move on from this, I'm, what do you make of, um, like madness mechanics in like horror games? I, I have sort of a, I have sort of a general moral issue with them, I suppose. I don't, I don't feel personally insulted, but I kind of feel like, oh man, this, this is not good. I know we're doing it again. We're doing it again because there's so many horror tropes about mental illness, right? There's just so much the mad scientist or the deranged scientist or whatever is a trope. The, you know, the, the asylum is a trope. The entire, the entirety of Outlast took place in a, you know, in an asylum. It's, it's like part of the horror genre, right? It's, these are these tropey things we see all over the place for it. Um, but it's still kind of not great because it really does make literal monsters out of people with mental illness. Like it's, it's very like, there's a pretty clear and, and present connection there that, that says some kind of not cool things about mental illness and people with mental illness. So it's kind of like one of those things where it's like, Oh, I, I, I get that you want to sort of reference something historically like a, a big part of the horror genre, but man, we got to get away from that. You know, it's, it's just sort of like, a little bit lazy, I think, at this point, unless you're directly commenting on that. Yeah, I. So I'll ask as an example that I definitely had trouble with that because its implication was directly like, "Oh man, these crazy people are a moral threat to you," uh, which is is really really kind of gross. Uh, I have slightly less of a problem with things like. You know, in a game like Amnesia or or any sort of like Lovecraftian uh, like survival game. For me, like the, the, like madness mechanics don't necessarily have anything that, like, I don't really read them as being too much a comment on mental health because the things you're dealing with are so insanely overdone <laughs> that, like, yeah, I, 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 yeah, there is a point where, like, fear and, uh, the four, like, and the, and the old ones could just completely, like, <laughs> shatter you psychologically. And so I'm, I, like, those I tend to have less of an issue with because I'm like, Okay, this this has no real relevance to someone who's dealing with like bipolar disorder, right? This is like, you know, oh well, when the tentacle beast slaughtered all your friends in front of you, you freaked out and and, and succumbed to their to the to their dark whispers, as we all would. Yeah, yeah exactly. And that, that that doesn't bother me as much, but things like. Things like, yeah, you've been locked in this insane asylum with all these crazy people. That's de that definitely yeah. gives me, uh, that definitely puts me off. Uh, yeah, there's kind of a one-to-one -one in that situation. <laughs> that's a little rough. Yeah. That makes sense. 
Do you want to take the next one or shall I? Uh, I'll take the next one. Okay, cool. Hey, Danielle and Rob. This comes from Fred. Relatively new listener here, but really enjoying the podcast. I was wondering in the current climate of full disclosure when it comes to reviews, is there anything a developer could innocently do that would actually make things difficult? Is it easier for you when developers are at more of a distance or does knowing a developer more actually, uh, does knowing a developer actually aid in the review process? Whoo. This one's a good one. Uh, <laughs> um, I think this one depends entirely on your ethics policy at uh, wherever you work, basically. And some places have very, very ironclad ethics policies about how chummy you can be uh, sort of with a developer, how, how okay. chummy you can appear to be even. I, I think that's a bit of a cop out though, right? Because some places ethics policies just kind of like, mm. <laughs> like I'm like <laughs> talking personally, right? Saying, well, yeah. refer to our ethics policy is fine, but something still went in to create that ethics policy. And there's certainly ethics policies out there that I think are a bit more about protecting the outlet's reputation than actually having any relationship to the ability of people to do their jobs. I think you're absolutely right. And I think a lot of that has to do with the climate that we're in with a lot of this. Uh, You know, speaking of of sort of the appearances of impropriety are are worse than, than actual uh, you know, bad behavior, it seems like. It seems, honestly, at this point, uh, just, just even looking like you've done something wrong is, is, you know, very, it's a fraught sort of position to be in. I, I honestly like a common sense approach. And, and this is just sort of how I, how I like to tackle things myself for my own outlet now that I actually have a say in a lot of these things and I am a reviews editor now. Common sense makes sense to me. If you feel the need to disclose something, if you are friends with someone, if you've had a friendly drink with someone, you can disclose it. You can just say, hey, I had a drink with this person. It's fine. We're all adults here. We can, you know, actually sort of make sense of this. And if you feel the need to recuse yourself, recuse yourself. Like it's, it's very, I don't think it needs to be fraught, basically. I think as long as you abide by common sense and you have a, a ethics policy that actually makes sense, it's outlined, it's clear, and it makes sense, then you're okay. Now, yes, I think you can honestly be screwed as a developer, especially an indie developer where there are less, you know, with, with AAA, I, this, you know, there are PR handlers for every person. It's hard to get quotes from people even sometimes yeah. in a AAA studio. So, you know, with indies, a lot of times, you know, I'll, I'll go, I'll be literally at somebody's hotel room showing off a game. You know, it's nothing, nothing whatsoever inappropriate. It's just sometimes with smaller games, you know, that's sort of the venue and so on and so forth. So it's, it's really just sort of like you got to be, um, I don't know. You've got to be absolutely clear about these things. You have to communicate things clearly. If you are an indie dev and you're worried about appearing kind of too chummy with people, just say that. Say, hey, is it okay for us to have dinner? Is it okay for us to get a drink? A lot of this stuff comes down to like sort of the common sense stuff that happens in personal relationships as well. You just have to be very clear in your communication. That's my take. I mean... For me, like, there are definitely a few relationships that I have that, like, there there are some developers or people that I'm not sure I want to review their games anymore. Sure. Uh, just because, like, I don't, like, I, I don't want to be in a position of saying, like, hey, I think your, I think your game sucked. And also, I appended the score <laughs> to it in front of thousands of people, right? Like, there's definitely a few, there's a few cases like that where I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm up for that. And I'm, I'm thinking, like, right now, um, 
so like Soren Johnson is coming out with a game uh, called Offworld Trading Company. Mm-hmm. It's totally in my wheelhouse, something I like to review. Uh, but at the same time, like Soren and I have worked together for years on Three Moves Ahead. Um, like he and I have had really frank and honest discussions about like game design and stuff outside of games. And it all adds up to this thing, this, this feeling of being like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I can actually give like a clean review of that because on the one hand, I will probably be harder on anything he makes because I will be checking myself against like a desire to like show preference or like look approved. Like, cause you always want to like enjoy your friend's work, right? You always hope that your friend's band actually rocks. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so I'd probably be pushing hard against that impulse and thinking, well, okay, I'm uh, like, like he's going to get special treatment. I'm really going to like put his thing under a microscope. On the other hand, though, there's, there's equally that fear that if I don't do that, I'll, be like, hey, it's Soren's game, and Soren and I talked so much about this game when it was under development, and I'm sure it's cool, and I'm sort of going in uh, predisposed to really enjoy it. And so that's a case where, like, usually I'm pretty good at, at sort of being able to compensate for any relationships or interactions I've had with people, but that's a case where, like, I've been close enough to the, the, to the game's development, I'm close enough to Soren. Uh, I've, I've, I've seen it over and discussed it so many times over the last couple of years that I'm just not sure that I would want to like present myself as, uh, you know, an objective reviewer coming to this with a completely like open mind or clean slate. And so I'm just not sure it's worth it, the trouble to me, uh, to, to try to work through all that, uh, for the purposes of a review. And I think that's, 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 that's where it becomes an issue for me, right? Like you, you hang around in industry long enough. You're going, like, you've had a drink with everybody. You've had conversations with everybody. Uh, it's, this is not that big an industry. Uh, so you're not going to have that complete, like, no, nobody's going to be that complete blank slate with no contact. Oh, with the developer at all. Right. That's, that's a very hard thing to maintain. And I'm not even sure it's worth maintaining, <laughs> but there are, there are some cases where it's like, at this point, I have sufficient history with a person and their work, uh, that I'm not sure I'm comfortable anymore trying to, you know, trying to put on the reviewer hat and say that, you know, I am completely now like divorced from those, those other, those other influences. Absolutely. And I think where a lot of this gets difficult for a lot of people uh, has to do with Twitter and social media. And really, uh, some of these relationships, you know, it's it can be hard to draw a line. And I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes from. And I think it is, frankly, where a great deal of confusion came from, especially with maybe some younger uh, writers or, or newer writers uh, sort of to the industry when when a lot of these things were maybe a little bit less clearly delineated. Now we live in a world where everybody's paranoid about <laughs> how things look. Um, but, you know, people people flirt on Twitter. People sort of talk to each other on Twitter. And the sort of lines between re- uh, developers and journalists have been blurred in the past. You know, there's plenty of people who have, you know, sort of made a few games or maybe worked on some indie project and they also write about games and so on and so forth. So there are some blurring lines here. And you know, for that sort of thing, I, I think, honestly, the, the main thing is a common sense policy that, you know, uh, that says, you know, where where does a sort of 
the line between a friendship or a professional friendship or, you know, personal versus professional friendship. Uh, where is that line? And sort of, you, you almost need to sort of be like a, a judge in those cases. Like, yeah. okay, hold your, hold court. Okay. Are you a personal friend or a professional friend of this person? And ask, you know, some relevant questions of your writer and see, you know, sort of where they fall and if they feel uncomfortable and exactly what you're saying, Rob, you know, you you have that gut instinct when you feel like you're maybe a little too close to someone to give a fully, you know, to, to feel that professional distance in terms of putting your reviewer hat on. So, yeah, this this stuff doesn't have to be that hard. I do agree that there are a lot of blurry lines, especially sort of in 2016, the way we talk to other people. And I'm so guilty of this. I tweet, you know, 10,000 times a day. So, you know, I, I'm completely coming at this yeah. from this is my life, too. This is not me sort of passing judgment on anyone. Uh, it just requires, I think, a really... You know, just to be diligent and have sort of take things on a case by case basis and have, you know, a good policy, a good common sense policy that that helps you, that guides you in making those decisions. Basically. Now, is that common sense policy like like in that case, do you prefer like clear guidelines laid down to writers or do you prefer like disclosure? Uh, I prefer clear guidelines in general, but I, I certainly am happy to do disclosure in sort of those situations where maybe things are a little borderline or, or whatever. I don't want to have just sort of one ironclad policy that will, you know, cover all bases because that doesn't exist in, you know, in the real world. So I like to err on the side of like, let's have a pretty clear policy. But of course, there's always going to be a million cases that, not a million, but you know what I mean? There's always going to be cases that require, hey, okay, I think you're clear here, but let's, let's put a disclosure just to be on the same side just to make sure you know our our you know t's are crossed our eyes are dotted that sort of thing personally that's how i come at it anyway yeah i mean for me like with with studios like paradox like that's sure. a case where usually i prefer just doing disclosure and being like yeah. look i have a relationship with a lot of people at this these studios uh we're we're all friendly with each other uh at the same time like a there's not that many people out there who are in a position to review a paradox game sure sure uh and and have necessarily the the body of knowledge but then but then also um you know this is a case where I've never had problems telling this group of friends that their games suck. Sure. Uh, so that, that that's one thing. Uh, the, the other thing I'd point out, though, and this is kind of the freelancer's perspective on this, I guess, <laughs> sure. is like <sighs> up to a point, like I do not make enough from <laughs> writing about games yeah. To make me adhere to some like monk like policy of course. about who I will be friends with or whose company I'm allowed to enjoy on press trips. Like, you know, out here in the freelance world, you're pulling down maybe a couple hundred per piece, right? Sure. sure. And at that point, like, I know, like, th- that's not saying, like, you don't pay me enough to have ethics, but, you know, I, if, if it's, it's not like being a lawyer. Right, right where where these conflicts of interest can have massive repercussions for how you <laughs> represent and advocate a position sure. uh or your ability to get a fair hearing uh in a court of law and the standards for that profession are commensurate with what that profession tends to pay right yes. here there's <laughs> here there's a different scale uh and, and so i think you you know you you end up like Games are not a super serious business. They are not the the pay associated with them is not a super serious business. And at <laughs> yeah. a certain point, I think you know, and uh, like an ethics policy has to recognize, like, eh, at the same time, 
It's fucking video games. <laughs> that's that's definitely more than valid, I think. And and frankly, especially Rob talking talking to you and talking to a person, you know, who's been doing this for a long time. There's also an element of trust. Like I I you know, if I, you know, asked you to write something for my website, I would trust you. You know, I know you as a person. I know your work. There is an element of just trusting someone who has done good work, who has been, you know, an ethical person and just saying he knows what he's doing. You know, there's no need to treat someone like a baby if they know what they're doing and they've always sort of put together good work. It's I, I, I really do think so much of, of our current climate is is very, very paranoid about a lot of these things. And exactly, your point is very well taken about like, you know what? <laughs> this is video games. Like this is about video games. Like it's it's you know it it's okay <laughs> basically. Yeah, yeah. And I I mean like and, and at the same time like I say all that and I'm I'm fully aware that there are people out there who are like yeah but I don't know you. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a reader right? right. Like I I want to know that you're you're being honest with me and you're giving me an uh, an, an unbiased opinion. And I and I totally understand that right? Like and and so I, I do worry like at a certain point maybe you know maybe this is us confessing a blind spot right? That hey we all trust each other and it's all fine I'm sure. I don't, I don't trust everybody. <laughs> That's yeah. the other thing. Like we also know each other in a professional capacity, which is also sort of a thing where you know maybe somebody else won't know that, but I like to think if we're all adults here and we all are are doing our jobs well we will build trust with other professionals who do their job well this isn't just you know cronyism this is i respect your work i know your work i know what you do i know how you operate and that's that goes in every profession ever you know you'll trust certain doctors you'll trust certain lawyers you will trust people whose work you as a professional will know you know, as somebody else, as a colleague in the field. So yeah. there's an element of this that is just, let's, let's be adults. You know, <laughs> there is an element of that, which I wish, um, you know, wasn't always, uh, you know, I wish we didn't always have to act like that's not the case. Like most, yeah. most people who, who do this and who have been doing this for a long time are, are grownups and who are willing to be grownups and, uh, you know, do their best basically. <laughs> So, okay, I think with that, it's time for us to uh, talk about our weekend projects. Rob, have you been watching or reading or, or playing anything lately that's really setting your world on fire? Uh, so, yeah, I recently I just read um, a really good series of Batman comics by Grant Morrison. Nice. Uh, set shortly after uh, the death of Batman and Bruce Wayne. Spoiler, he's not really dead. Uh, but <gasps> What? <laughs> it's this uh it's this series done uh where Dick Grayson the former Robin comes back as Batman and he's working with uh Bruce's son Damian Wayne uh to sort of pick up uh to to sort of take up the mantle and it's just it's a really superb series of uh Batman comics in part because it's this interesting alternate Batman where like, what if you had a Batman who wasn't an irrevocably broken and kind of awful person the way Bruce Wayne is <laughs> sure. uh, in some ways, like Dick Grayson is fundamentally like a cool, compassionate person who can deal with his issues. Right. And like his inclination is to trust people and respect their choices. Whereas Bruce Wayne's is to control people and, uh, completely sort of bend them to as well. And so it's this really interesting, uh, it's this, it's this really interesting series of comics where like you have a Batman who 
views the police as actual partners, yeah. uh, as opposed to people just like heap contempt upon. Uh, <laughs> you've got a Robin who fundamentally doesn't understand the no kill restriction, right? And is constantly being like, well, why don't we just take the gloves off and just like deal with the, with these guys? And so you have sort of like Dick Grayson trying to impart that as well to this character. And, um, yeah. And so you, you can get the, um, the, the, the trade collections, uh, you know, together for like 40 bucks all, to- all told. But, nice. uh, the, the first book is called Batman and Robin, uh, Batman Reborn. Uh, the next one is, uh, Batman versus Robin. And the, uh, final one is Batman and Robin must die. And the, other cool aspect of this is it sort of it, it builds uh, toward this finale where you start seeing a lot more. It, you know, it starts with them just sort of fighting crime uh, on a slightly smaller scale. And then it ends with your your standard like um, go to Damarung uh, stakes. Right. But the the last book uh, is is illustrated by Fraser Irving, and it is one of the most vivid and slightly troubling uh, like. Batman comics I've ever read because like mm-hmm. every frame is every every page pretty much is this like amazing series of like almost paintings but yes. the way the characters are drawn is just a little bit a little bit off they they sort of like pop off the page they don't fully seem to belong in the comic world it, it looks like in the background you have comics but then the characters all look a little bit more like, uh, <laughs> like, or like oil paintings, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's this really, it's this really troubling effect. Uh, but it's also really, really mesmerizing. So it's one of those books that like every page, you're just sort of savoring, uh, the, say, is savoring sort of the, the, the triptych that, that Fraser Irving, uh, just laid out for you. So that's something I've been, I've been really into lately. Now, the, the problem is, I kind of didn't love the ending because unfortunately at the end, it starts to turn back into a traditional Batman comic, right? At the very end, it's sort of going back to normal. They're sort of launching their next major plot line. Uh, but for, but for three books, for the majority of three books, it's, it's a really cool, uh, like alternate reality of who Batman could be if you had a, a more decent person, uh, <laughs> under the, under the cowl. That really does sound uh, pretty awesome because I'm a, I'm sort of a non-Batman fan by any means. <laughs> so this is Batman and Robin and Batman and Robin must die. These are uh, there was one in the middle there too. I want to make uh, yeah, sure I get it right I mean, for my notes. Batman versus Robin, but <laughs> the, the main thing Robin. to remember is this is the this is Batman and Robin uh, by Grant Morrison. Uh, okay, that awesome. will that will bring up the the full series, uh, and that's that's what you want to be looking for. Oh, perfect. I've got that in my notes. Well, Rob, I have a couple of quick things uh, that I want to give. Uh, I, after our Marxist uh, cyberpunk hour last week, I, I got into a couple of shock and awe, more cyberpunk uh, stuff going on. So I started reading Southern Cross. Uh, I guess we're doing it. We're doing comics this week. That's cool. Uh, Southern Cross, number one. This is a, a comic. It's an image comic. Um Stories by Becky Cloonan, the art by Andy Bellinger, and I think Lee Lowridge as well. So this is sort of a a semi-cyberpunk, futuristic comic. It stars this young woman 
uh, Alex, who is sort of, you know, a working class woman who who has to get on this this giant freighter that also sort of shuttles passengers around. And of course, it's it's run by this, you know, Wayland Utani style company because mm-hmm. everything is in in this the bleak cyberpunk future. Uh, and her sister was killed working for this company, and she basically is sort of trying to figure out what happened to the sister. And she has sort of this, you know, this sort of rundown life that she's had. She, you know, she has a violent past and the sister died in mysterious ways. And there's all these sort of weird characters on this ship. These other sort of working class, you know, working stiff type of people who are all interesting and have cool haircuts. And uh, the aesthetic is is gorgeous and beautiful. It's very, you know, beautiful sort of starscapes mixed with these, you know, very much, you know, steerage class ship, you know, yeah. the people on the lower decks kind of thing. Um Really, really enjoying it. I'm only sort of in the beginning so far. I've only read the first issue, but I'm very, very intrigued. I'm very much looking forward to seeing what happened with uh, Alex and her sister, basically. And of course, I'm a sucker for cyberpunk that gives a, uh, you know, a lady in sort of the the lead role of, of figuring out the mystery and all the sort of uh, things that are going on with the evil corporation, of course. So that was Southern Cross uh image comics they you know i love image comics i'm not gonna lie they make really some a lot of really interesting cool stuff maybe i have a soft spot for them you might say uh and the other thing i've been doing i've been playing a lot of this little game called defragmented uh and this is a cyberpunk uh sort of visual novel slash hotline miami style game so it's, it's almost like a cyberpunk rpg with a lot of sort of action elements uh, and in this game, you're, you're playing as somebody who's new to the town and, of course, evil corporations and evil this and evil that. And everybody has a cool computer and, uh, you know, a lot of the trappings of, of your usual cyberpunk. So the first scene happens in a, you know, a rundown ramen shop and it's great. It's just the visuals are beautiful and, and, and amazing. And the gameplay is really, really fun. It's It's, you know... The Hotline Miami style of play, the sort of top-down twin-stick shooter with, uh, you know, with that sort of speed, you know, it, it's very, very fast mm-hmm. and then it's very, very slow. You know, it, it is certainly slower than Hotline Miami and a little bit more deliberate. And it actually has a visual style that uh, reminds me of, uh, uh, is it Frozen Synapse? Uh, that game that, that has like a very laser, you know, sort yeah. of blue lasers and then yes. you, you, you're you very bright. Yeah, it, it looks a little bit like that, but plays a bit more like a, a Hotline Miami I'm really intrigued. I've tried streaming it a couple of times, and streaming has been a little difficult. Uh, I, I don't know what's happening with that. But it is a really intriguing game, and I'm also very interested in the story of that. So that one is defragmented, uh, if you are interested. So I have one very important question about Southern Cross, though, before yes, we before absolutely. We I'm looking here, and it appears to be a fairly recent comic. Yes, does that also mean that if someone's getting into it right now, they will not find even a semblance of a satisfying conclusion anywhere in the currently extant comics? That's entirely possible. <laughs> okay, because yeah, that because that's just the thing, right? Is like I I hate like I enjoy comics. Oh my god, do I hate the experience of being a comics fan though? Like uh, I hate it. I, I like, know just, what you mean. I know. Just what let you me mean. come back to like this Grant Morrison thing is a perfect example. I think that thing took like a year to run, maybe longer uh but you know what let me come back to it six years later <laughs> and i will just get the three big books yep. and enjoy them all uh rather than sort of reading it issue by issue where nothing is resolved uh because that's just oh it's maddening oh it is and it and it also like it, it makes me angry because i'm like no i want more i want more i want more and also like i just want to buy a thing like yeah. I, I don't i hate the idea of like i'm basically like 
paying a gym membership or something, you know, for, for something like that. It's, it's like this weird strain on my conscience. Like, oh, I can't, you know, there's a fee that I must pay monthly to get my, my hit. Um, <laughs> there is a collection. There is volume one of Southern Cross. There is a book available. It actually just came out apparently, um, in January. So it's not a, you know, it's still ongoing. It's still a new comic, but you can at least get, I think, I don't know, several issues sort of in one if you if you want yeah. to. Uh, so it's not like a completely, like it's only piecemeal at this point. At least there right. is a book, but um, I'm intrigued. I think it's cool. But yeah, that is always a risk with comics, right? <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So I think with that, it's time for us to go out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net Send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. And again, thank you all so, so much. We get so much wonderful correspondence. Even, you know, guests of ours have come on and said, wow, you, you guys get like really great email. We get amazing questions. So please do keep that up. We really, really appreciate it. And please do, if you are enjoying the show, please do rate us on iTunes and tell your friends about us or tell anybody who you think might like us about us. You can you can shout it on the streets. We don't mind anything uh, you'd like to do. And that, that does really help us. And we really do appreciate it. And, of course, to keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. All right. All righty.